WRFI Community Radio News is made possible by listeners like you. Help us tell important stories about your community. Head to wrfi.org slash donate. From the Kenny Ritter Studios in the historic Clinton House in downtown Ithaca, New York, this is WRFI Community Radio News for Tuesday, October 13th, 2020. I'm Ed von Adderkass. After the headline news, you'll hear an episode of Work, exploring the future of work, labor, and employment. Today's selection features a conversation that explores shifts that have occurred in unions. Tonight, mostly, uh, but first, here's your weather, courtesy of the National Weather Service. Tonight, mostly clear with a low in the low 40s. Tomorrow, sunny with a high in the high 60s. Tomorrow night, partly cloudy with lows in the high 40s. Looking forward to Thursday, slight chance of showers and mostly sunny with a high in the high 70s. And now here's tonight's news for Ithaca and Watkins Glen. In local news, there is concern that funding for two community outreach workers in downtown Ithaca might be threatened due to economic fallout from the COVID-19 pandemic. The Ithaca Times reports that during a downtown Ithaca Alliance meeting last month, there is a discussion about the possibility that Tompkins workers might not make it, sorry, Tompkins County might not make its yearly contribution for the outreach workers. The program focuses on providing needed services to disadvantaged populations. Family and Children's Services of Ithaca operates the two community outreach positions. County Administrator Jason Molino advocate, uh, allocated $20,000 for the program in the county's 2020 budget. Eventually, the county met two over-target requests of $25,000 and $15,000 for a total of $60,000. The City of Ithaca, Downtown Ithaca Alliance, and Ithaca Renting also can contribute funds for the program. Molino says that the county will not repeat the 20000 allocation in the uh, 2021 budget and has not provided reserves for any over-target requests. Gary Ferguson, Executive Director of the Downtown Ithaca Alliance, affirms that his agency in the city would continue their contribution. Tompkins County Legislature, Anna Kellis, confirms that Molino did not include funding for the outreach workers in his 2021 base budget. She adds that the program is highly regarded and successful, and that it's possible that her colleagues may call for the funding to be restored. The county legislator will vote on the budget later this month. Looking at the local COVID-19 caseload, the latest numbers released yesterday from the Tompkins County Health Department indicate that there are 11 additional positives, and five new recoveries. According to the County Health Department, this leaves 42 active cases of COVID-19 in Tompkins. In Schuyler County, 11 new cases of COVID-19 were reported today, according to their health department. In addition, there are now four Schuyler County residents hospitalized for the virus. 14 active cases remain. After the two arrests from Sunday's Black Lives Matter protest in Ithaca, Public officials have responded. According to the Ithaca Voice, Mayor Savanti Myrick said, quote, This obviously creates cleanup costs for the cities and adds to the workload. 
And personally, I believe these actions are counterproductive to any righteous cause, unquote. The people arrested were not involved with spray painting. Ithaca Police Chief Dennis Nair is not stating why these people were arrested, but condemns the vandalism. Sunday was not the first time that protesters spray-painted around the police headquarters. It's unclear what pushed the officers to make their arrests. Tompkins County Administrator Jason Molino is hosting a public forum on police reform this Thursday, October 15th, at 7 p.m. that will be live-streamed to Tompkins County YouTube channel. All municipalities that have police departments are required to submit a police reform plan by April 1st, 2021, after the state's executive order following the death of George Floyd. During the event on Thursday, Molino will provide an overview of the governmental departments, trends from the community's survey response, and the next steps in the police reform process. The public can give input during the YouTube chat live or fill out a survey on www.tompkinscountyny.gov. There, people can also view the Tompkins County Governmental Department that reports to the Public Safety Committee on County Legislature. Three Ithaca police officers were injured yesterday when responding to a domestic incident in the area of McDonald's on Elmira Road. 14850 Magazine reports that the police arrived to find a person who had been involved in the disturbance. A second person, identified as Julian M. Jones, had left the premise... Uh, Police investigating the disturbance learned that Jones had committed the offense of harassment in the first degree, which is an offense under domestic violence laws. While the officers were on the scene, Jones returned and tried to recontact the victim of harassment. When officers tried to de-escalate the confrontation, Jones struck one officer. When the other officers attempted to arrest Jones, he resisted, and in the process, two other officers were injured. In an IPD press release, Lieutenant Jacob Young indicated that one officer sustained a knee injury, another officer injured their hand, and a third sustained a shoulder injury. Jones was arraigned in the Ithaca City Court on charges of assault, resisting arrest, menacing, and harassment. He was also wanted on previous arrest warrants. He is being held in Tompkins County Jail on a $1,500 bail. In some election news, tonight at 7.15, the Tompkins and Cortland League of Women Voters will host a live forum for candidates in the running to represent the 125th New York State Assembly District. Anna Kellis, the Democratic nominee, and Matthew McIntyre, a Libertarian, will participate in the forum, which can be heard right here on WRFI at 7.15 p.m. New York State's election administrators are preparing to account for an unprecedented number of absentee ballots, new voter protections, and voters' fears of disenfranchisement, the Albany Times Union reports. The New York State Board of Elections Democratic co-chair Doug Kellner says that CARES Act funds given to the election board for the primary election in June are mostly gone. Issues with voting vary depending on where one lives in the state. For example, postal issues in the primary election were concentrated downstate in more populated communities, but was not a problem in other regions. There's also problems with finding volunteers to work at the polls, because some of the usual volunteers were not able to do this due to COVID. Those that fear their ballot won't be counted are encouraged to vote early and in person. Those who do not feel safe voting in person will have to make sure to request and to return an absentee ballot 
before November 3rd. In more election news, Trump's Supreme Court nominee Amy, Judge Amy Coney Barrett's confirmation hearings began yesterday. So did Georgia's early voting, where some precincts experienced issues. More on the latest U.S. elections, courtesy of our friends over at Pacifica Network and the Public News Service. Welcome to 2020 Talks, where we track the 2020 elections in uncharted territory. Senate Republicans have made it crystal clear that rushing a Supreme Court nomination is more important than helping and supporting the American people who are suffering from a deadly pandemic. In day one of Trump nominee Judge Amy Coney Barrett's confirmation hearings, Senator Kamala Harris rebuked Republicans for ignoring coronavirus protections, economic relief, and pushing through a nominee when voting has already started after refusing to hold a hearing for President Obama's nominee in the year before the 2016 election. Less than two weeks after the president announced Barrett's nomination at what Dr. Anthony Fauci called a, quote, super spreader event, unquote, at the White House, senators were allowed to attend virtually. But Utah Senator Mike Lee, who tested positive after socializing at the White House event, showed up in person and took off his mask to speak. South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham, who presides over the hearings as Judiciary Committee chair, also attended that event and defended his decision not to get tested before the hearing. I'm not going to be told to be tested by political opponents. I'm going to be tested as an individual when the CDC requires it. I think we can safely conduct this hearing. Republicans accused Democrats of being anti-Catholic and anti-religious in their questioning of Barrett's legal positions. However, Democrats didn't mention her religion, and their own presidential nominee, Joe Biden, is also a devout Catholic. They focused on the threats to the ACA, including insurance coverage for pre-existing conditions. White House physician Sean Conley released a little more information on the president's health yesterday, saying he had tested negative on consecutive days. But other health experts say the low sensitivity of the rapid antigen test is not as conclusive as other tests. Trump campaigned in Florida, a key battleground state, where thousands attended his rally, many without masks. I feel so powerful. I'll walk into that audience. I'll walk in there. I'll kiss everyone in that audience. Florida's early voting starts next week. Georgia's started yesterday with record high turnout despite technical and other problems. And say Ufat with the New Georgia Project, a civic engagement group, says some of the issues were foreseeable, but a judge ruled this weekend it was too late to address the technical problems. Ufat says waits of up to seven hours in some counties disgusted her. People still came. They showed up. The voters that we talked to were talking about feeling super optimistic about this election. James Woodall, president of the Georgia NAACP, said he'd also heard reports from Black Voters Matter that several armed individuals wearing political gear showed up at an early voting location in Americus. In the state of Georgia, there are statutory prohibitions that organized armed militias are not to be allowed. In addition to that, Georgia also has very clear guidelines and laws that prevent any individual outside of law enforcement from being armed at a election site. From Pacifica Network and Public News Service, I'm Lily Bolke. Thanks for listening. That concludes our headline news for tonight. You are listening to WRFI Community Radio News. I'm Ed von Adderkass. Up next on our program, you'll hear an episode of the Cornell ILR School podcast, Work, Exploring the Future of Work, Labor, and Employment. Today's selection features a conversation with Sarah Nelson, the international president of the Association of Flight Attendants, AFL-CIO. She and Cornell ILR Dean Alex Colvin discuss the shifts that have occurred in unions. 
Dean Colvin starts things off. I wanted to start off by talking a little about your union, the Association of Flight Attendants. Your members are probably some of the union members in the country that the public is most familiar with seeing doing their work. And any of us who fly gets to see and listen as the flight attendants who are working the flight go about uh, their jobs. Uh, but at the same time, this stereotype of union members is often still uh, rooted in the old image of the often white male auto worker, steel worker, even though today, Airlines are among the most unionized industries in the country. Uh, I was wondering if you could talk a little about what union representation means for flight attendants and, and why this group has become one of the real strengths of uh, union representation today. Sure. Well, it was um, it was exciting to me this past year to see a real awakening into who union members are and that unions are for everyone. And um, this has been a real challenge uh, throughout the entire existence of my union, which was formed in 1945, our first contract in 1946. And one of the first things that we had to do was to negotiate a seniority list so that we could build right off the bat uh, the inability for management to try to pressure people to trade sex for schedules or give uh, discriminatory uh, treatment uh, against individuals because um, they didn't act right or look right. Um, and that was the basis for all of our challenges to uh, beat back discriminatory practices that had us stepping on a weight scale even until 1993 in order to do this work. And so we really had to fight um, to just turn this job into a career and make it possible for anyone with the heart of a flight attendant to be one. We even fought for men to have the same rights on the job. And so that's all fine within ourselves, but we never, ever expected for anyone else to give us that recognition, to hand us respect. Um, we felt that we had to stand together and take care of each other and um, fight for that on our own. But in this past year, there's been a real opportunity for union members to step forward, women specifically, people of color. Um, I give a lot of credit to the Me Too movement. Um, I give a lot of credit to the um, pictures of solidarity from the Women's March. And um, this has really been a moment where we can stand up and say, no, this is for working people. And working people, when they stand together, no matter what job they're doing, have power. Because the reality is that our economy doesn't work if there's one group that can't do their job. And um, that was what was so exciting, actually, when we had the New York Times business section, the front page of the Sunday business section, saying that flight attendants are powerful. At first, I hated that headline uh, <laughs> yeah. because I'm so conditioned to people talking about flight attendants in the old sexist way. And so I thought that it was a little jab at us. And then I started to realize, no, this is a real moment. This is a moment where our careers are being pushed forward, where our union is really pushing forward. And the fact is that flight attendant and power was in that headline. And that was a real paradigm shift. That seems like a real shift that's gone on. The labor movement has always had this tension between uh, cooperative approaches and confrontational approaches. And you think back in time, uh, and particularly think of the 1990s, there seemed to be this effort to try the cooperative approach. You got Saturn at the Saturn plant at General Motors with cooperation with the UAW. And in uh, airlines, you had United with this ESOP and the unions uh, being involved with that. Uh, now it seems like the pendulum shifted, that there's been a shift to um, uh, arguing for more confrontational approach to, to say that that 
uh, needs to be the emphasis. Uh, do you think, what do you think's behind this kind of shift? Do you agree with that shift? And, and what do you think's driving that amongst workers and amongst uh, union leaders? I agree with this shift 100%. I mean, the reality is that um, the, the, the GOP, uh, the Chamber of Commerce, uh, the Right to Work organization has fought for decades to try to destroy unions, to kill unions. And one of the ways they did that was try to define unions as, um, as union thugs, <laughs> um, as disconnected with the workers. Um, they stripped away at unions' rights, the ability for, um, to conduct sympathy strikes. Um, the ability to stand up for one another, the ability to have mass strikes and mass demonstrations. And what that did was it really hampered the ability for workers to understand the power of standing together. And so we, it led to an era of business unionism where we were processing grievances, uh, where we were believing that uh, relationships were going to solve uh, the issues for workers. And that's just totally contradictory with the original purpose of unions, which is for workers to stand together and to take on the big issues um, as a united front and um, use that power. And when you take that power element out of the dynamics here in the employer-employee relationship, then there is a disconnect with the idea of unionism and the, the uh, relatability of workers to unions and how that's about uh, the people who are looking out for their interests, not the management. And so it has become abundantly clear to workers in this country that management is not the one to look out for their interests. You may have one benevolent manager along the way, um, but management comes and goes and work, workers stay and create the real value. And unless you have an idea that your power comes from standing together and have that really ingrained in your workplace and ingrained in all workers' minds, then the whole idea of labor management relations breaks down. You know, a lot of people talk about strike as a dirty word, but strike means that everyone has to understand what's on the line and what they're willing to do to fight for what they want. And what that does is it encourages agreements because there is a deadline, um, there is a risk assessment for both parties, and when you have that deadline and you have that risk assessment, it tends to drive people to um, come to compromise. Yeah, and so that struggle, that power struggle is important. So one of the changes that we've seen just the last couple of years is that after years and years of strikes declining along with the declining percentage of workers represented by unions, suddenly we've seen an upsurge in strikes again. I think about the Rev-Red strikes, the teachers launching these really remarkable mass strikes in parts of the country. We don't see traditional uh, strengths in unionization. We've seen strikes in all kinds of places, grocery workers, General Motors, auto workers. Uh, yeah. This is the biggest strike years uh, last year since the 1980s. Uh, but it seems that there's something bigger than just more strikes. There seems a different character to these strikes. Uh, what, what do you think is going on with this increase in strikes? And are we going to see uh, more of this going forward and different kinds of strikes? Yes, we are. I mean, look at the strike wave that started with the West Virginia school walkouts in 2008. You know, this raised wages for all state workers. Um, and that was because all 55 counties stood together. And in fact, um, even the county executives were in support of these strikes because the communities were not getting what they needed in order to attract people to the communities, educate the children, 
and um, give proper pay and uh, working conditions that allows people to contribute uh, to where they live. And so um, they, even though the law was completely against uh, these school employees, they did not have the right to collectively bargain. They did not have the right to strike. They did not have a state budget that was supportive of what they were asking for. And yet by taking action together and understanding that they were in this together and ha experiencing that real common uh, interest in raising the standards for everyone, that's how they won. And that is what is going on across the board. If you look, we took flight attendants out to the GM picket line. And the issues that they were talking about are the same issues that our members are experiencing. This, um, this idea that you've got temp workers or a two-tiered uh, working system is something that flight attendants understand very well and that we understand in almost every other industry. The issue of scheduling and being required to come in uh, for overtime, that is an issue that flight attendants understand. The issue of understaffing so that we're doing more on the job with fewer of us there to do it and how that relates to safety and health. These are common issues across the board, and that's what's going on, is that people are identifying that they've lost their retirement, they've had cuts in pay, they don't have control over their schedules, there is less staffing than there's ever been, and there's every effort to define the business as how it defines a value of someone's work. And people, have, people are saying the jig is up. I mean, this is, uh, the jig is up on the gig economy. Mm -hmm. The jig is up on um, this, um, the way that Wall Street has tried to redefine work according to um, a business practice rather than recognizing the value of every single person. And as Unite Here says in the great hotel strikes against the biggest hotel chain in the country and now continuing on for all of us, it's something the whole labor movement is taking up, one job should be enough. And the truth is that across industries, People are working two and three jobs just to get by. So there's a real common understanding of the inequality in this country, what that means for our, for our families. And there's a real desire to stand together, this idea of solidarity and how we have got to stand together to take back um, our, the value of our work. So the other part of building labor power traditionally as well as using the strike weapon has been organizing, uh, bringing new members into the union. Uh, one of the biggest ones in your own industry uh, issues in, in the last couple of decades has been around Delta, which is the largest non-union employer of flight attendants in the industry. And there's been efforts to try and organize it, the 2008, 2010, votes, very close votes uh, that organizing efforts failed. Uh, can you talk a little about where organizing efforts stand at Delta today? Uh, what's going on now? Yes, and I just want to note that as these strikes have worked and people have seen results where they don't necessarily see results with governments, uh, with the government, um, people are interested in being a part of unions. And so there, the fact that there is this overwhelming positivity towards unions in this country right now makes the ground fertile for organizing. And every time there's a strike where workers win, people want to be a part of the winning team, and that encourages people to come out. And we heard a lot of uh, workers expressing interest in joining unions after the GM strike, um, after the grocery workers strike, after the teachers strikes. And certainly we are experiencing that at Delta today. So a big change from uh, 2010, the last election, to today is that more than 40% of the workforce has been newly hired since that time. So they don't have any of the baggage of the old uh, anti-union campaign. 
Um, Delta is a very anti-union employer and integrates this into everything they do, including propaganda throughout the training <laughs> that uh, the flight attendants are required to go to these meetings uh, about how Delta is different because they don't have a union. Um, but people are not buying it because when they go home, they've got um, more often union favorability in their household. And this next generation understands that this is the first time that the generations before them have not made it possible for them to move forward and make life better. In fact, they have everything on the line. They may even lose their entire world um, based on what the former generations have done. So there is a real uh, understanding that uh, workers have to stand together and that the people who have been decision makers traditionally have not been looking out for their best interests. And that is making it very fertile ground for us to organize in addition to the fact that our union has been so uh, visible to flight attendants on being at the forefront of fighting for our safety and health and fighting for our, um, for our jobs and our careers and respect on the job. And so there's a lot of excitement at Delta. It's a completely new day. And the biggest difference is that in Atlanta, where it has always been very difficult to break through, we are seeing that this campaign is actually being driven from Atlanta, which is on its head um, from the past. So there is a, a real new day here for organizing for workers, uh, certainly for flight attendants. And it's really important because as Delta is non-union, they can keep uh, the, the uh, flight attendant costs for the airline down. And in fact, they pay $100 million less a year than United Airlines does uh, with our flight attendant contract there. Um, and that is a lot of money over the last nine years that they have not had a union. So $100 million is a big incentive for this company to keep the union off the property. And we can't push our careers forward at United or anywhere else if we don't organize at Delta. We also can't get laws that support the work that we do as flight attendants if we don't improve our numbers and have more power on the Hill. Because every time we advocate for something on the Hill, Delta comes in and speaks for the flight attendants and says that it's not something that they want. If you get the election results that you're hoping for, what, what do you think, uh, what are the key policy changes do you think that are most important for, uh, for union members to see? When one uh, worker out there is injured, uh, it's an injury to all. This is the age old adage in the labor movement. And so we have to have the ability to stand together and conduct sympathy strikes and um, really create that worker power to get resolutions and to get our economy working in the yeah. other direction so that we're not uh, living in this era of uh, increased inequality. Yeah, you're really uh, suggesting kind of a shift in how the labor movement thinks about itself, too, as kind of social unionism, uh, you know, contrasting with the traditional business union, the more transactional approach the labor movement traditionally traditionally taken. It sounds like you're calling for a real change in how the labor movement itself organizes itself, thinks about itself. Well, listen, uh, PATCO was a strong, unified um, politically strong union, uh, but the one thing that they forgot was what Mother, Mother Jones taught us, and that is that you've got to bring everyone to your side, and you've got to organize with the community, and you've got to make these strikes resonate with the community and understand how it's going to help everyone around us, and that is really important in order to win. Um, you can't do this alone. Uh, we have to change the way we're looking at this, and who better to do that than 
frankly, women and people of color who have built up uh, structures within our communities to take care of one another. And we couldn't do it without uh, depending on each other. And that is the way forward for the labor movement. Well, it's interesting. The labor movement itself and membership has become increasingly more diverse. Uh, we're getting closer to equal male and female unionization, African-Americans more represented than other groups. Uh, but the leadership of the labor movement at times seems like it's still the leadership of the movement from 40, 50 years ago. What does the labor movement have to do in terms of its own leadership to kind of develop a more diverse representative leadership? You know, this can change uh, by the members getting involved and taking action. It will naturally change. Uh, there will naturally be challenges in elections or the, the leadership who's in place today will be responsive to this new activism from the grassroots. Um, so this is not something that I think is going to change from the top. It has to change from the bottom up. Mm -hmm. And that is the kind of energy that we're seeing. And we're seeing unions change their position because of this activism from the grassroots already. Um, so it is a natural progression that will yeah. take place. And um, certainly I would call on all, uh, all leaders in the labor movement to be very uh, astute to this. I'm on one labor board where I am the only one sitting there. And I talked mm -hmm. with the... Um, the, the leaders of that board and said that we have got to do more um, to change the way this looks, because as long as we continue to uh, project this idea that the labor movement is only for a few, we're in trouble. But I am, I am really not concerned about this, because yeah. I believe that as we continue to spread the message, the grassroots is going to take care of this and take ownership of the labor movement, and it's going to be a labor movement that doubles and triples in size over the next 10 years. That was Sarah Nelson, the international president of the Association of Flight Attendants, AFL-CIO. She and Cornell ILR Dean Alex Colvin were in conversation on the ILR School podcast, Work, exploring the future of work, labor, and employment. Hear more at work.ilr.edu. And that will do it for our show today. The headlines at the top of our program were written by WRFI contributors Esther Rakusin and Tessie Devlin. WRFI News Director Michaela Savitt is our program's executive producer. Special thanks to Mary Cat, Julie Greco, and the Cornell ILR School for sharing their podcast work with our show. We'll be back tomorrow night and every weekday evening at 6 to bring you more of the stories impacting our communities. I'm Ed Von Atterkass, and on behalf of the entire WRFI News team, take care, be well, and have a great evening. One, two, three. W R F I. <laughs>